Okay, you can go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to uh, James chapter 1. Uh, as I said, we're going to cover uh, up through verse 18 this morning. Um, and just to, to set the stage a little bit, uh, James chapter 1, it, it's, uh, it's a hard chapter. And it's hard because um, he never really spends more than about three verses on one idea before he jumps to the next. Uh, it's, not, it's not super developed. Uh, it, chapter 1 almost is like a table of contents for the rest of the book. So many of the themes that we're going to see this morning and actually next week where we finish chapter 1 um, uh, come up in this chapter. They get introduced, but they're not really developed. And uh, because everyone loves a good boxing analogy, chapter 1 is like the boxer throwing a bunch of quick jabs, right? Just hit you quick, set you back on your heels. And then after this, James is trying to knock you out with the word of the Lord, right? This is just rapid fire hits. And then he starts going deeper and harder after this. Um, I don't know why that illustration works so well in my mind, but it might not work as well for you. That's kind of the idea. So all these different themes that we're going to kind of breeze over today, trials and suffering, uh, wisdom, the question of rich and poor and worldly status, and does, what does that mean or does it mean anything? Uh, temptation, our own limitations and the temporary nature of this world, uh, having a long range and eternal perspective, uh, uh, how we speak to one another, which is something that will come up next week, um, faith and action, how we do what we believe. All of these things come up very quickly in chapter one and then get talked about in more detail in the next four chapters. Right. That's just kind of how he laid it out. And I think what, what James is doing, right? So I'm just trying to take my clues from this guy who wrote this. Is he's, this is like an invitation to think about these things and to begin shifting our perspective on these matters, on trials and suffering and, and wealth and money and temptation and these things. Uh, so to give you an idea, this is my little uh, Bible nerd alert, okay? In chapter 1, um, chapter 1 has 17 verbs. Right, I love this stuff. 17 verbs that are related to things like knowing or understanding or perception, something like that. And only seven more for the rest of the four chapters, right? So for the first chapter, 17 out of 24 of those, of those things that are trying to correct our perspective show up here in the first chapter. So I'm just, what I'm saying is I think what James is trying to do is to help us focus, is to rethink. Do I really understand these things? So today, part of what we're doing is we're just asking the Lord to adjust our perspective to match his. Right? Adjust our perspective to match his. All right. So this is a lot. And um, I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'll, I'll say it today. This might be one of those sermons that you should go back and listen to a second time. Not because it's going to be so awesome and not because I want to boost up our uh, podcast listens. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but because we are going to move quickly. Um, I'm just going to try to fly over some things. And so this might be one of those that you're like, I remember he said something about blank and I thought it was important. I'll go back and listen to it. Um, so let's break it down like this. I'll try to simplify it. These first 18 verses. Um, James gives us two paths that we can walk on, each with their own destination, right? So two paths, two destinations. And I'll just point this out. Neither path is particularly comfortable, okay? 
Neither one are going to be easy. So option number one, path number one, right, is verses 2 through 12. I'm just kind of laying out the outline here for you, right? The path of spiritual maturity, right? The destination is the crown of life that the Lord will give us, right? But the path of spiritual maturity, that's up through verse 12, right? And that runs through, you know, perseverance and trials and uh, takes wisdom and humility, things like that, Okay? Uh, and the second option in, in 13 through 15 is this path of giving in to temptation. And that ultimately, the destination is death. Right? That's where that leads us. Um, right? and, and so that's where we see temptation matched with our own evil desires leads to sin and death. Okay, um, Now I'll unpack this, but just to kind of it's a lot we're going to get through, so I think it might be helpful to have a little bit of a roadmap. Um, so one path, the path of spiritual maturity that leads us to the crown of life, and the second path is the path of giving in to temptation, which ultimately just leads to death. All right, so let's jump in. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay. And I'll point out here, this is one of those, it's kind of a famous verse, actually. I hear it a lot. Um, The trials are not the joy, right? The joy is our state of mind or our posture before the Lord as we are facing trials. Whenever... You face trials, right? That's what it says in verse 2. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. And it's always funny whenever people ask me, they're like, so Danny, you know, James wrote this in Greek. What does that word mean in Greek? And the word means whenever. So whenever. (laughs) If is not what we're talking about. It's when. When you face trials. And allowing our faith to be tested, right, proves what is real. So, you know, the Old Testament prophets oftentimes use this imagery of a refiner's fire. Do you guys remember this term? When I was in college, there was a little chorus we used to sing, refiner's fire. Uh, and it always struck me as a weird thing to sing. Because in the Bible, that's never a comfortable thing. When God puts you through the refiner's fire, like fire burns, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on these things. But going through fire is not fun. But what does it do, right? You put gold into a fire and it burns away the junk. Right, the impurities and what comes out is pure gold. Okay, so trials works in a similar way. Is it it gets rid of the junk in our faith, and what comes out is the pure faith, the pure trust in the Lord. Right, this produces perseverance, one of those underrated uh, characters uh, characteristics. Right, uh, of following Jesus. If I think if we were to ask like, hey, what are top ten like character qualities? that you need to follow Jesus, I wonder how many people would actually put perseverance in their top 10. Maybe some would, right? But I'm not sure that many of us would. But the Bible talks about it a lot. Perseverance, endurance, the ability to go through a difficult time in life and come out on the other side still standing and still trusting the Lord. That's perseverance. Um... It's, it's grit or resilience, right, if you want to use some different words. Um, and actually, there's like a lot of good data psycholo- uh, from psychologists 
about how much resilience helps people in life, right? But, you know, the, the perseverance is not really the final goal. The goal here is maturity. I mean, this is what it... Uh, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, now, some of your translations will say something like, um, so that you may be uh, perfect and mature, or perfect and complete, and something like that. Um, and this is an interesting one. I don't know what, what translations you guys have, so it's hard to know. Um, so we see the word perfect, right? So that you may be perfect. And we think of like pure, non-blem- no blemishes, nothing, right? And so like sinless perfectionism. And I read something, a, a passage like this, and this is why I think the NIV translated it a little bit differently because they don't want to confuse us. And I think, yeah, but I'll never be perfect, right? But in the Bible, the word perfect is a little bit different. It's more like a wholeness. Now, let me kind of give you, uh, try to give you an illustration. Um, we lived for, for seven years in Southeast Asia, and so we, we speak, uh, our family, my wife and I, at least our kids have forgotten everything, uh, Bahasa Indonesia, the Indonesian language. And I remember, I didn't ask you about this illustration, but I'm going to use my wife as an illustration here. Uh, uh, a friend of ours had cooked some food and asked Lisa to, to, uh, to try it. Just taste it. Tell me what you think. And Lisa tasted it, and she really liked it. And so she took the English word perfect and just used the Indonesian word that we learned, perfect. And she said, hmm, sempurna. Sempurna, right? Uh, and our friend looked at her like she had three heads, like Sempurna. And it was like, okay, you know, that, that moment, it's like the, she's looking at you. And I don't know how many of you have ever learned a second language, but it's the, the visual of confusion, but also some pity. Like, oh, you're a full-grown adult, but you have a preschool vocabulary. I feel so sad for you, right? It's one of those moments, it's really, it's kind of painful, if I'm honest. And so Lisa says, okay, so what does sempurna mean if, it does, if it's not applicable here? And she's like, well, if a person is not missing any limbs, they are sempurna. They're whole. They're complete. It's not that their body is completely perfect, like they don't have any blemishes, right? It's just that they are complete. They're all there. Right? So they could look at somebody and say, okay, you know, 10 toes, 10 fingers, two eyes, a belly button, all this other stuff you talk about with your little babies, you know? And you say, perfect. Now, we all know that there's probably no, there's no person who has a completely perfect, unblemished body, right? Amen? Yeah. Um, and yet, they're sempurna. They're perfect. They're complete. And so most of the time, at least, when the Bible talks about perfect, that's actually the direction it's going in. And we know that's what James is doing here because what's the very next phrase he uses? Not lacking in anything. So the goal here, he's not saying, hey, if you persevere, you will be sinlessly perfect. No, that's not what he's saying. He's like, it's through these trials and through your ability by the grace of God to persevere that God is forming you into a mature, complete person. You are becoming rounded out. You're not lacking these characteristics that Jesus has displayed and he's putting in us. That's what God is doing in these moments. Right. Now, this is all process language, right? But, and so we're all lacking in something. Um, and this is actually, I think, most clearly seen in trials. When things are going smooth and easy, it's easy to think that you personally uh, are doing well. 
It's when the trials come up that the difficulties in your, in your character are revealed, right? We could probably stand here and share stories about that when you realize the major flaw and you didn't know it until something hard happened, okay? Uh, but one thing that we might be lacking that we desperately need in trials, in difficulties, is wisdom, which is why I think he quickly jumps, right, in, in, in verse 5. So he says, you know, you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Okay, we're going to fly through these verses. Um, I think he picks wisdom, right? This is not necessarily the most important character trait. And yet in trials, it really is. The wisdom to understand what is God doing and what sh- how should I respond? But you'll notice he roots it in the character of God. And we're going to come back to this theme. Right? We can pray with confidence because of who God is. So the doubting, the, the, the kind of the rebuke or, or the, ch- uh, the, the challenge here of pray without doubting, it's not, uh, it's not doubting yourself. It's doubting the character of God. We serve a God who gives. So don't doubt, right? Um, and I think these verses, are they're both convicting and encouraging, right? They're convicting. They're strong words that I don't really want to smooth over. Like there's a strong warning here. And yet they're encouraging because the whole point is they're rooted in the giving nature of our Heavenly Father. Right. Um, and even this phrase here, that the NIV, it translates it, who, uh, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Um, and again, I don't know what translations you have in front of you. Another way to, to, or probably a slightly more literal way of translating that would just be God who gives simply and without rebuke. Simply and without rebuke. And this is what I, I think, this is why this is so important, why James puts this in here. You ask for wisdom, and God doesn't give you the list of conditions that must be met in order for him to answer your prayer, right? You know, anytime like your phone wants to update and, you have, and it gives you this long list of things you're supposed to read, and none of us do, right? You just click agree, and you probably just signed your soul away, Right? Um, God isn't doing that. And he does it without rebuke. Now listen, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this. This is one of these because I know you're all going to raise your hand. But how many of you have ever prayed for another second chance? Right? I already asked for something, Lord. Like I asked, I, I messed this up. I was wrong and I sinned and I'm asking for another chance. And then you come back again later and say, I know I've said this to you before, Lord. I repent. I'm sorry. Please help me. Or maybe you asked for wisdom and you actually got it, right? The Lord made it clear, whether it was through somebody else uh, giving you an encouragement or something you read in scripture or just the clarity of thought that the Lord gave you wisdom in a moment and you opted not to follow through with it. Because we've all done this before. And you come back to God and you say, Lord, I know I asked for this before and I know you gave it to me and I ignored your voice. 
Lord, please help me again. We can multiply these examples over and over again. But we serve a God who gives simply and without rebuke, without the lecture, right? Like, okay, I'll give this to you, but you remember the 14 times that you screwed up? And let me add a few more that you actually forgot about that prove my point that you're a horrible person and you desperately need my help. Okay, here you go. So you walk away feeling worse than when you went to God, right? So if that happens, right, if you're going to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, help me, I need something, and you're, all you're hearing are all the ways you screwed up, can I tell you, this verse tells you that is not the voice of the Lord. He gives simply and without rebuke. Simply and without rebuke. That is the character of God. And that is why we can pray without doubting, where we can pray with trusting, because that's just who he is. All right. Now, <clears throat> doubt and, and wisdom and perseverance and, and trials, these are not the only things. Um, verses 9 through 11, it really seems like a hard pivot. Like if you pulled these verses out, it, you could move on pretty easily. Um, but I don't think they're completely random, right? This would be the start of sermon number two. Remember I told you there was going to be two or three sermons? This is the, uh, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Okay. Uh, and again, this is a theme that comes up again. It comes up again in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. So I'm not going to try to say everything we, can, we need to say here. And it really might seem like James is just picking on rich people. Uh, and kind of. <laughs> um, but I just want to make a, a, a couple points. One is just a general principle about reading scripture. I think it's really easy to forget as we're reading this. That James was a real person who was writing to real people. Like who were actually going through real life trials and situations. And if you keep reading in the letter, it's easy to see that in the communities that James is writing to, the rich and poor divide was not just present, but really dangerous. Okay, And, and I'm not going to give it all away because that's why we read the Bible. Just keep going and read through James. And you'll see that this was, this was a major issue that he is, he is confronting. So I don't think this is just randomly like, I don't like rich people. I'm going to start you know, taking shots at them in my letter. He's actually warning real life people. This is the situation. Okay, uh, so, so why does he bring it up? And, and here's part of what I'm thinking about. In the context, again, of perseverance and trials. Those who are, and the word is literally lowly, the lowly brothers and sisters. Um, I wonder if James is what he's saying is they are um, perhaps uh, likelier, is that a word? More likely to know they have no choice to rely on God. Or to put it this way, perseverance and resilience is built into their life. Right? That they have to go through that no matter what. I, I think... Um, an example of my grandparents, my mother's parents, um, two of the, the toughest and hardest working people I have ever known. Uh, they're no longer alive now. Um, 
My grandfather grew up in Hyde Park, an extremely poor family. His mother abandoned the family when he was two, and he had to drop out of high school at 14 or 15 and work. He was actually working as a welder at the Quincy Shipyard, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and, and until, until World War II. And he just had to work hard. There was no other option. My grandmother, who eventually became his wife, uh, was orphaned during the Great Depression, and was taken in by a family down in Rockland, and they treated her like Cinderella before the fairy godmother showed up. Like that was her whole life, and she was basically a, a, a servant uh, who had to get up at four and you know scrub the floors and get all the other kids dressed before she go to school. And they stole the presents that were sent to her through the foster care system and all this. Other. Never got any letters from her siblings. It was an awful life, and they learned resilience because of what they had to go through. My grandmother worked uh, up until uh, three weeks before she passed away. She was 86 years old, still working 20 hours a week because she couldn't sit still because that just wasn't how she grew up. Right? And I'm not saying all that is healthy. It would have been great for her to take a nap once in a while, but she learned resilience and perseverance because of the difficulties she just had to go through in life just to survive. Now, again, this isn't to say that no wealthy people have that built in. In fact, some wealthy people are wealthy because of that, right? The resilience and perseverance, and they're able to work hard through difficulties and get to that point. But in the trial, and this is where I wonder where, where James is going here. Are there some that he is worried about, those who have more resources in life, to use those resources to alleviate the trial, Right? The, the, the suffering and the difficulties that come, that they're going to try to do whatever resources they have at hand to get themselves out of the difficulty. And the problem is, is that can short circuit the maturity process. You guys familiar with the, the terminology of lawnmower parenting? This has come up more and more in the last probably five years. Uh, so lawnmower parenting are those parents, and I'm not trying to step on toes here, uh, who get the lawnmower out in front of their kids and they mow down, remove any obstacle that might be in front of their children and their happiness, right? It's just get it all out of the way, clear out every obstacle so my kids can just have a clear path forward. And the problem is, and there might be times where that's wise, but the problem is, is resilience and perseverance and difficulty, that's part of how people grow up, right? That's part of how you mature and you learn to handle because as it says in verse two, trials will come whenever they come. So I think that's, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of guess here, but I think that's why James is going down this road, right? Is that what he's worried about is his readers, his original readers who are, who are wealthier and have all these resources at their hands to alleviate the struggles of life, to make it easier for them, that what they're doing is they're cutting off this process that God is trying to do in their heart. And this process that has an eternal reward and in order to, in short-circuiting this path to an eternal reward, using things that will, will fade and wither and die out. Do you see? It's where are we putting our trust? Are we putting our trust in a God who gives simply and without rebuke, who gives us good things and is leading us to a place of maturity? Or are we trusting in what I have accomplished on my own? Even though that's going to fade away. Right? The old phrase, you can't take it with you. It's true. So I don't, I don't know if exactly that's why James goes down this road, but I think that that's getting us to that point. But we can rejoice 
Because no matter whether you're wealthy or poor or whatever, you can still learn endurance. This isn't one of these sermons of like now sell everything you have and, and go live a hard life so you can learn something. Uh, I, I don't think that's the point either. Um, so this is where James shifts again. And he does something that he will do multiple times in this letter. I encourage you to look for him as you're reading. Where he gives us an eternal perspective. Right? In verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, right? All that stuff we just read, if you can come out of there with perseverance and joy and maturity, you will receive the crown of life. Again, based on the character of God, Right? The person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him, a God who keeps his promises. So uh, I think we can say in a sense that the, 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 um, the payoff right, for those who are faithful in difficulty and trials is that there is a blessing now and there is a blessing later. Um, you can enjoy the blessing now of, of growing in the Lord, of maturity, becoming more like Jesus, growing in joy uh, and, and humility and wisdom and so on. And later, for all of eternity, we experience the joy of life in the Lord, in the presence of God, unfiltered, unhindered for all of eternity, a reward that does not spoil or fade. That's worth it. That's worth that. Remember, as I said, this path, it, there's no promise that it'll be easy, right? And yet the destination is worth it. Now, I said earlier that James kind of lays out two paths, right? This, that one, the, the path of uh, spiritual maturity that ends, that leads us to the crown of life. Um, the second one that we'll, we'll kind of hit quickly here in 13 through 15 is, is this path of giving in to temptation, right? Which leads us ultimately to death. So read with me in, in 13 and uh, in, in following. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. This is interesting imagery, right? right? Of temptation and an evil desire meeting up together and having a baby. It's just a little odd. As I was reading through it, I'm like, man, James is like the weird uncle at the family reunion. You never know quite what he's going to say, and if it's going to kind of hit up on the line of not appropriate. That's James, Okay. Uh, and yet the, the imagery is actually really powerful, right? I mean, you're at a party, temptation and desire. They meet their eyes across the room. They like each other. And this is not going to go well. And this, this comes in, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, the, the, the desire to uh, be respected or admired or uh, uh, to look impressive in front of others. When you combine that with the temptation, you know, say, for example, in the workplace to, to, to cut corners or to cheat or to steal ideas or to minimize other people's accomplishments, right? You step on their head so you can get up the ladder. You combine those two things, that desire of yours, 
plus the temptation that exists. And where is that going to lead you? Sin, right? And that ultimately, the Bible is very clear, will ultimately just lead us to death. This desire for like power or in prestige and authority. Just go sit down and read through the Old Testament sometimes. Read through the, the narratives, read through the prophets. And how many times the people of God, they're looking for some sort of power over somebody, right? That's their desire that they have within them. And so what do they do is they find uh, <clears throat> these other nations, these powers, and they partner with them. They sell out what is good and true about following the Lord and partner with these evil, uh, evil powers around the world. And what happens is they sin. They, they abandon the one true God. Right? So this, this desire for, for power and prestige and a seat at the table combined with the temptation to partner with things that do not honor God, powers that do not honor God, lead you away from the Lord. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. I, I mean, that's today, right? Let the hearer understand. This is how it goes. All right? Or the desire to look like a strong Christian. You want people to look at you and say, this is a person of maturity and faith and all that. And plus the temptation to hide the pain and the sin and the hurt in your soul. You put those two things together and what do you do? Right? You're not confessing sins. You're not being open and honest with people. And that does not lead you to the Lord. It leads you down the path of sin and death. Um, so I, I think it's important here that James, I think, is getting at. God gives trials, but he doesn't give you sin, Right? You don't get to choose sin and then say, well, God told me to, or God said it was okay. Um, If the Lord's desire for us is this path of maturity that leads us to the crown of life, then the path of sin and death, that leads us in the opposite direction. The Lord is always pointing us to himself. How do you know which path you're on? Part of it is which one is leading you to him. Not away from him. Not looking more like other things out there, but looking more like him. Looking more like Jesus. And and I think that leads us to to our next set of verses, which really ties all this together. Um, Starting in verse 16. So he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So we had these two paths, right? One, the path of spiritual maturity that leads us to the crown of life. Two, the path of giving into temptation that leads us to death away from him. But the theme that we see running throughout these verses that tie it all together, right, is this giving nature of God. That is the character of God. And I know I I preached on this last week, actually, and I do this every so often where I just come back and say, what does this tell us about the character of God? But I do it unapologetically, (laughs) right? It's God is revealing himself. And so I'm coming into the saying, Lord, how are you revealing yourself? And it comes all through this. Just go back and look through it again later. Mark all the times it talks about God giving things. And even if the word give doesn't show up, like you go back to verse 12 and it says, that person will receive the crown of life. Well, you're receiving it because God is giving it. God the giver is the theme that he is showing us in this passage. 
right? His goal for us is this, as he terms it, the birth through the word of truth, which I, I think this is, he's, this is James' take on Jesus' language of being born again, right? That you would be born again. As opposed to the birth of sin and death that we just read about, this is the birth, right, of giving us new birth through the word of truth. <clears throat> so when we are facing difficulties and trials in life, right, this is what we know. This is what we cling to because there's a lot of confusion in trials and what's going on and, and what is God doing and what am I supposed to be walking away with, right? What do we cling to is the character of God, the God who gives good and perfect gifts, as it says. He gives wisdom. He gives perseverance, right? What we need to develop character. He gives simply and without rebuke. He gives the crown of life, right? I mean, all these things that James talks about, this is the nature of God, the God who leads us to himself. He doesn't give us temptation and sin and death. He's giving us the other direction to get us to the crown of life. That's the thing we cling to when we're confused about everything else. So um, we're going to take a, a moment just to uh, reflect and respond to the Lord. Um, and ask this question for us to, um, to think about. Is, uh, so are there areas, or maybe the better question is, uh, what are the areas in your life where you're struggling with difficulties or trials or temptation? Um, for some of you, this will be very easy. You already have it in your mind. You had it in your mind this whole sermon. And others, you might be thinking, okay, Lord, reveal it to me. What, where are you wanting to work in my life? Um, and I just want to take a, a minute or two and just ask God for his perspective. Right? As we said, this, this first chapter of James is so much about shaping the way we think, getting us refocused. So, Lord, how are you revealing your character to me in this time? And what is it that you are wanting to give me, right, to shape me during this struggle, Lord? Lord, how are you revealing your character to me in this time? And what are you giving me to, to, to shape me in this struggle? So, Father, would you speak to us, Lord? Would you, would you show us who you are? and how it is you're working in our life, Lord. Give us wisdom, Lord. We say right now, give us wisdom and insight into what you're doing.